everybody, whether you're the president of a company or the paperboy, everybody has the exact same amount of time. You and I both have 24 hours a day. No more, no less. The question is, what do you do with your time? Real quick, my friends, go get my new book. It's called The Power to Publish. And it's at the top of the page of zbooks.co at the link, my new book. And it's going to help you with all of your self-publishing needs. Okay, back to that podcast. Welcome to ZBook Successful Authors Podcast. And today, I not only have a big gun, I've got a dangerous gun. I have a super lawyer from Texas. And he's written the book, Betrayal, Obama's Corrupt Legacy of Lies, Deceit, Guns, and Murder. Help me welcome to the show, Larry Gedos. Hello, Larry. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Did I mess up your name? No, perfect. Oh, all right, all right. Yes, the, the book, the title is just really awesome, you know. <laughs> corrupt legacy of lies, guns, and murder. So <laughs> before we get into that, let's, let's um, talk a little bit of background first. You graduated West Point. You're in the Army. You're an officer. And you're a Texas super lawyer. So, so how about we start at West Point? Sure. Yeah. And you graduated West Point, and then you were an officer in the Army. What rank? Yes. So my father was a, a military officer for 24 years. So I grew up in the military and I actually uh, lived overseas quite a bit in France and Germany and Japan. So uh, I always wanted to go to West Point uh, since I was 10 years old. I, I was fortunate enough to be able to attend there. I graduated in 1973. Uh, I graduated at the top of my class. I started in the Corps of Engineers. Nice. Top of your class. Sorry. I, I, I had, that's not easy, right? Sorry for interrupting. But top of your class at West Point, that is uh, pretty good, eh? Uh, it, it, was a, it was a challenge. It's obviously very competitive there. But I was one of those people that always wanted to go to West Point, And I loved every minute I was there. It was the, probably the best experience I ever had in my life, frankly. Uh, and, and, I, and I was fortunate I did very well. I was, I was a cadet captain, and I won some awards uh, when I graduated. And I, I was able to get some good, a good assignment when I graduated because I was at the top of my class. So I went into the Corps of Engineers. And... Okay. About a year into my assignment, I was assigned to the 25th Infantry Division in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. they, the Army started a, uh, a funded legal program, and I, I applied for that because actually at West Point, I did graduate first in my class in law. Uh -huh. I was accepted into the program, and I went to the University of Virginia Law School for three years. Mm -hmm. When I graduated, I was in the Army JAG Corps. JAG I went to Corps. Germany. Sorry, what yes. was what JAG Corps? The, 
Yeah, the Judge Advocate General's Corps, which is uh-huh. the the branch of the Army that uh, the lawyers are in. Uh-huh. My first assignment was actually in Germany, where I was the chief prosecutor in a senior defense counsel in the Frankfurt, Germany area. Mm-hmm. Then I went to back to the Army uh, Judge Advocate General School, went through the one-year graduate course where I finished first in that class. And they invited me to stay on the faculty. And then for three years, I taught uh, military criminal law to all military army judges, uh, um, basic class, graduate class, and a lot of other lawyers uh, in other services also. Wow. Yeah. So you were at the top of that class too. And then you started teaching other people. So this is like just a, a, a career of excellence. I was very fortunate that I got great assignments and I had great opportunities in the military. Oh, you're playing it down now. Come on, you, you kick ass. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't say that. I bet I was fortunate that I, I, <laughs> I actually got a below the zone promotion, which is pretty rare to major. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and then when I got out in 1980, I got out after 13 years in 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was a major at the time. Awesome. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was in the military too and, uh, and, you know, college too. So uh, that's a pretty uh, much, uh, a pretty big achievement, what you got going there. So I just wanted to say that. And uh, everybody well, out you. there. I appreciate that, Eric. Yeah. Everybody and out there. Listening, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. So, Okay, I'm I'm sorry I interrupted you. So you uh, so but that makes the connection that I was I, I didn't know right away. So you went you went basically from West Point straight into law. I did. Mm-hmm. Then in 1986, uh, I got out uh, because I I wanted to do trial work, mm-hmm. and as a major in the Army JAG Corps, you don't get to go to court there anymore. You can be a military judge at some point, but basically you're going to be an administrator or be in some other function. And I wanted to be a trial lawyer because that's what I loved. That's what I taught at the Army JAG school. So I got out and I came, went to a firm in Texas, Haynes and Boone. At the time, they had about 70 lawyers or so. I went there and then with three other people, I started a white-collar criminal defense practice. All my practice in the Army was criminal law, so uh, the transition to white-collar criminal defense was a good one. Uh, So four of us started the white-collar criminal defense and antitrust law practice at Haynes and Boone. I was the head of it. Uh, We Mm -hmm. grew it, and I was there for 30 years practicing white-collar crime and antitrust. So um, now I have to go off on a tangent. one of my favorite books is um, How to Win an Argument by Gary Spence. And I might have messed up hmm. the title. Have you heard of him? That's funny that you say that. You know, yeah, I, I know him. I actually, when I went to Haynes and Boone, the very first case I had was an antitrust case in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. The that I had to go to a number of pretrial hearings. It was in federal court in Shreveport, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I happened to meet Jerry Spence. Yeah. 
Uh, I had previously met him because when I taught at the Army JAG School, I actually brought him into my advanced trial advocacy port, um, course as a guest speaker. So I knew Jerry from then. Uh, at the time that I ran into him at my first uh, trial in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, he had just come out with the book and we were going to appear before the same judge in back-to-back -back cases. So yes, I know him very well. Uh, he's a great lawyer and a really, uh, really interesting guy. So supposedly he had a 100% success rate, never lost a trial. I don't know if it's true, but is, is that true? And how was your uh, success rate, if you don't mind me asking? I don't know if he never lost a trial. I, I think a lot of trial lawyers say they never lost the trial, <laughs> but there's a subjective element to that uh, characterization because a lot of trials, as you know, end up in um, guilty pleas mm -hmm. uh, and other dispositions. So what, what you deem a, a victory or a loss is, has a subjective value to it. Now, while I was in the military, I did um, well over a hundred uh, trials. As a prosecutor, I, I never did lose a, a trial. Uh -huh. uh, as a defense counsel, I did lose one trial. Hmm. It was actually the very last trial that I did. Oh. Yeah, and that's the only loss I ever had. That kind of hurts. <laughs> yeah. You want to end on a good note, you know? Wow, but that is yes. an incredible record still. All right. Yeah. And the case that I lost was actually one of the biggest trials in, in the history of the military. It was a nine-week. Can you tell insanity. us about it? Sure. It was a nine-week uh, trial. It, 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 the offense occurred in Germany at an Army training area. A soldier fired a tank into hmm. uh, uh, the tank and parked in front of him at a railhead in Parsberg, Germany. It killed two soldiers and injured two. The soldier uh, that I defended, we had an insanity defense, hmm. uh, which was hotly contested. And, and so I actually won all the, the, uh, the trial and all the offenses of premeditated murder, but he was convicted of a, a lesser offense called hmm. a murder, murder by an inherently dangerous act. Uh, basically, because there was an erroneous instruction by the trial judge, it was appealed. It went up to the through the military appellate courts. Uh, two of the three judges said that the judge gave an erroneous instruction, but they said that uh, uh, it was harmless error, so the conviction stood. And that's the only case I ever lost. Wow. Wow. So I, I can imagine that anybody going up against you was kind of afraid. I, I don't know if they were afraid or not, but I was fortunate that uh, I had some good people that worked with me also. And we uh, were very proud of our, our record, especially in Germany, because it was at that time we were in the most active criminal jurisdiction in the entire United States military. Really? How come? Why, why so much activity there? I thought Germany was so, you know, Western, and or was it the soldiers thought they could just do more there, or I, I don't get it. 
Yeah, that's a good question. So it's partially a matter of timing because uh, this was uh, not just a, a few years after the Vietnam War had ended. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the draftees and a lot of soldiers that were still hanging on uh, were in Germany, and we were in Third Armored Division, which happened to be the the unit that the division where Elvis Presley was stationed at one time. Aha, yeah. yeah. So the Frankfurt area was had a, a lot of troops, had a division uh, plus some other troops. Frankfurt at the time was really a hub for the drug trade that was coming into Europe. The military soldiers stationed there uh, were very active in 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 using drugs and selling drugs. Hmm. So that Frankfurt was a big hub, and so that particular division was the most active military um, criminal jurisdiction. In <laughs> fact, the, the, when I first arrived there, I was only there for two weeks as the chief prosecutor when they they ended a an extended undercover drug operation that they had been doing in the area. They had brought in the criminal investigators and undercover police from all over Europe Hmm. to do this operation. It was called Operation Snow White. <laughs> and over uh, over 150 soldiers were called out and were charged with felony offenses, all of which had to be prosecuted under the speedy trial laws. They had to be tried within 90 days. Hmm. So I had my hands full. As soon as, soon as I got there, I had a, a death back to the cases uh, uh, that we had to prosecute within 90 days. And, and as I said, all of those um, individuals did get convicted. Wow. So why was it called Operation Snow White? Uh, I think, I don't know who actually came up with the name, but I think it had to do with the fact that there were a lot of drugs involved and maybe cocaine yeah, yeah. references kind of caused them to call it Snow White. Yeah. So I can't help but go off on this tangent because you got such a good record and you just, you said in that operation, 100% conviction rate. And and so we just talked about Gary Spence and how to win an argument. So how much of this is your rhetoric and your, you know, your winning an argument and, or is it just, you're just so prepared and you just lay down the law? I think by far the most important um, uh, aspect of winning trials is preparation, mm-hmm. knowing the facts, doing as much work as you can to get the facts, then your ability to present it to a jury is important, but ultimately, especially in military trials where you have very smart juries, I think that the facts um, if they're presented properly, are really what dictates the outcome. Oh, that's interesting because that's right. You were in military court, so you don't have just um, 12 people going to court duty. You have, um, uh, yeah, like you said, military guys. and So the jurors are uh, uh, cut above. True. 
the commanding general appoints the panel. They're uh, usually all officers that are very prominent in the organization. If the accused is enlisted, they can request that at least one third of the jury be enlisted members. Hmm. Uh, and, 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 and most times the enlisted people do want to have that, but sometimes they don't. So that's interesting because that means that more rational, logical, you know, factual things actually work because I'm a big student of persuasion and rhetoric. And when it comes to elections and civilian trials, it's pure emotion. It's just whoever can get, you know, the emotion, associate things with bad things or good things, the image, it's just pure emotional and, you know, you really think that um, facts don't matter anymore, you know. So I guess in your case, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, Eric. I think uh, civilian trials, uh, you end up not getting a, a, as educated uh, of a jury panel. And I think they are more susceptible to emotional arguments. Uh, there are, you, you also have to deal with aspects of uh, the of politics and mm -hmm. a lot of extraneous factors that you don't have in in the military yeah that's probably too bad i think um i think you you probably know about this famous study and graphic that have been done that show the number of convictions right before lunchtime and right after lunchtime how the yes. graph it just has it's just ha it's a sawtooth graph you know there's this peak in the valley like Holy cow, you don't want to be going to court right before lunchtime in a civilian case. That's true. And I think they have similar data for cases that extend to the weekend. Uh, yeah. If the jury's going to have to come back on Monday, that affects yeah. their, their uh, desire to be done with the case, that sort of thing. Okay. Well, that was a tangent. So let's get back to your book. Tell us, tell us what got you into writing, and then yeah, then we'll talk about your book. Sure. During my time as a, as a lawyer, both in the military and in civilian practice, in thirty years at the law firm I was at, uh, I wrote many many articles and a, and a lot of book chapters, but they were all uh, directed towards a legal profession audience. Uh, lawyers. Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to do a book that was directed more at a public audience. I, I mentioned previously the trial that I lost in Germany. Yeah. Uh, I, one time I, I started writing a book and actually it was accepted by the military book club. But then my co-author uh, that I, I was writing it with who was also my co-counsel in the trial, he ended up um, uh, having a lot of personal issues, and so we had to scrap the project. Hmm. So, so when this opportunity came up, uh, I had represented Andres uh, for an, uh, since from 2009 until 2017 uh, in a variety of matters that stemmed from uh, his him being used in Operation Fast and Furious, which I know we're going to talk about, yeah. which was an Obama administration program where they let 
over 2,000 assault weapons go to the Sinaloa cartel. Mm -hmm. I represented Andre all, all during that time. I'm sorry, which, who is this Andre? Andre was my client. He was the, ah. the he owned the main um, gun store in Phoenix, Arizona that the government used to sell the guns to the cartels. Yeah, and if I understand it correctly, the government told him to do it. They, yes. Yeah. They approached him, asked him to assist them in taking down a cartel. They told him all the guns would be interdicted, but then they sent in straw purchasers who were, that included embedded FBI agents that came in and bought large quantities of assault weapons they let them all go right to the cartels, the Sinaloa cartel primarily. Uh, so they re they used Andre and they lied to him. He uh, they told him that they were being interdicted. So I ended up representing him uh, when the government started investigating yeah. uh, that operation. Uh, now I've been, I've been represented him off and on. Uh, like I said, it's, it's still continuously today ever since. Really? Uh, yeah, 2010, yes. Wow. So how many guns were walked walked to Mexico? Uh, over 2,000. Wow. And, and they, um, that, in, that included, they were all uh, guns that were designed to be used by cartels. They were, the largest number were AK-47s. Mm -hmm. But they also had Herstall uh, five seven yeah. guns that were called the cop killers. Yep, and they included fifty caliber, uh, fifty caliber weapons that could were powerful enough to to fire rounds through uh, through vehicles, and 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 actually one was used to to shoot down a Mexican army helicopter. So let's get this straight. The DOJ, Department of Justice, and the ATF, they, they say to your buddy, well, your client, Andre, I want you to sell guns to these straw men, and then uh, we're going to intercept these guns later, but then they don't, and it ends up 2,000 guns go to the Mexican cartels so they can, you know, murder, rape, and pillage and shoot down helicopters. That's absolutely correct. How were they going to find, did they have like a re receiver or an RFID chip or some kind of secret thing in the guns so that they were going to find them later and tag the guy or, or what was their plan? It sounds like a Trojan horse without being in the horse. That's a very good question, Eric, because <laughs> in, as a matter of fact, in the Obama, in the um, Bush administration, mm -hmm. they had a a operation called Gun Runner, where they did work with the Mexican authorities. They did put chips in the barrel in, in the uh, stocks of the guns. Mm -hmm. They did trace them and track them, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the idea there was that they would track them to the border, coordinate mm -hmm. with the Mexican authorities, 
the Mexican authorities would pick up the person that received the guns at the border or took them across the border, and then they would arrest them at some point when they were delivering them to the cartels. Hmm. The problem with that operation was that the chips only lasted, the batteries in the chips only lasted a short period of time. They wore out and then they couldn't trace them. So they shut down that operation immediately. Hmm. The Obama administration was different. They did not put any tracking devices in any of the guns. (laughs) What they did was they recruited Andre they put surveillance cameras in his shop. People from ATF, the heads of the ATF and the Department of Justice could actually, on their computers in Washington, observe the sales in Andre's off in his store. Hmm. They had a dedicated phone line that they would call him on that was taped. They would tell him that there were going to be People coming in uh, from that were straw purchasers. Yeah. They wanted to buy 40, 50 AK 47s. Of course, he didn't stock that many. So we'd have to order them. And then they would set up the sale. ATF or DOJ would set up a surveillance in his parking lot. Hmm. They would see, see the person come in. They would get the data from his, 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 um, uh, automobile license and things like that. They would run background checks. Uh, They knew that these people couldn't afford to pay for the guns. (laughs) They would track them to the next stage, which was usually a stash house where they would be stored for transport to Mexico, to the cartels. And then they just broke off the entire investigation. They did nothing any further to track them. In fact, when a lot of the guns did get stopped at the border just by people that weren't involved in the operation, just regular border patrol people or police, uh, they would call in and say, we just stopped this truck and it has 50 firearms in it. Uh, They said, let them go. And they let them go go into Mexico. They never told Mexico they were doing this. They never coordinated at all with the Mexican authorities to pick up on tracking them or follow up on the sales. They did nothing. So how were they even going to then nail these drug lords in Mexico? Or was that not even their motive? Did they have an ulterior motive? Great question. So what they said their plan was, was that they were going to wait until the guns were used in a crime in Mexico. <laughs> we had an agreement with Mexico that if, if weapons from the U.S. were seized, then they would provide the, the serial numbers, et cetera, to the U.S. authorities so that they could trace where the guns were sold from. So that the, the idea was that they would wait and then when the guns were used at a cr- in a crime and seized at a crime scene, they would track them to Andre and a couple of other um, gun stores along the border, but mainly Andre. So, uh, and then they yeah. would uh, build up a database of where they were seized uh, and who they were sold to. 
and they 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 called it an intelligence gathering operation that somehow was going to take down a cartel. Now, how they thought it was going to take down a cartel, I have no idea because there is yeah. no way it was going to happen. The so truth it, of the matter is, yeah, as you suggested, it was they had an alternative motive, and that was uh, gun control. Yeah. They wanted to use the data to make a pitch to try and get gun control through Congress by saying that gun stores along the southwest border of the United States yep. were the ones fueling the very, very bad gun violence that the cartels were, were, were involved in. Well, not just along the border, but throughout Mexico, frankly. So that is so evil on so many levels. So, for example, if you believe that they actually want to catch and take down the drug cartel, then their plan was to sell a bunch of guns there and then follow the bodies. And the body count will make a chain from Arizona or, or Andre to the cartel dude, and we'll take them down with, with the chain of dead bodies. And the other, the other one was, okay, we, we really don't want to take down the cartels. We just want to make a case against guns by getting a bunch of Mexicans killed. That's unfortunately the truth. That's disgusting. <laughs> That's our government, eh? It, it was. Hopefully it's not our government now. Hmm. But that definitely was the plan. And so when Eric Holder and Barack Obama were running for president, gun control was a big issue that they, um, they ran their campaign on. And yeah. Eric Holder became the attorney general. He was uh, the main legal advisor to Obama during the campaign. Mm -hmm. As soon as Obama got elected, he tried to get gun control legislation through Congress, but even his fellow Democrats wouldn't vote for it. Hmm. So they came up with this alternate idea of how to build up a story that would be strong enough to convince hmm. enough people in Congress to pass gun control legislation. So how many people were killed? That's, that's a good question also. Now, it has been documented that over 300 people in Mexico were killed at crime scenes where these guns were seized. Hmm. The number is probably far, far greater because yeah. remember, 2,000 guns went across the border to the cartels. The cartels obviously were going to use these guns in criminal acts, mm -hmm. uh, they, which they did. Uh, there's some horrific their incidents. One involved them going into a birthday party with children and they killed 40 some people. Wow. Um, there were other multi multiple killings of groups of people at different events. Hmm. We only know about the ones where guns were actually seized at the crime scene. Yeah. Those same guns, even if they were seized at a crime scene, they doubtlessly were used in crimes before that, they're still today 
more than 50% of those 2,000 guns have never been seized. Wow. And are still being used in crimes. <laughs> and they still are showing up at crime scenes. And not just on the, along the border. Yeah. The, so tell, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that, for an example, the um, I, I think everyone is familiar with the, the tragic ISIS attack in Paris in November of 2015. You know, at the, not enough the people Medicaid know about theater. it. Yeah, you know, Pardon? I tell people about that and they don't know. You know, that's, that's okay, that's another tangent, but uh, it's just disappointing, you know. Uh, but, guns know about that. Seized, but guns were seized at that ISIS attack wow. that were sold during Fast and Furious. From no Andre. way. Are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. Wow, that, because you know that they suppressed all of the photos from the aftermath in that concert theater, um, it, they were all uh, uh, censored out of the newspapers here uh, because they were just so brutal. They were torturing the people. They were just, it was just, it, it just, just terrible. And uh, I never knew that even though those guns made it all the way there, that's just crazy. That, and, and, and you tell people about that theater. What was the name of the theater? It, the Beta Clan. B-E-T-A-C-L-A-N theater in Paris. Yeah, exactly. I always have a problem saying it. And yeah, wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty heavy. So uh, that brings me to your chapter four in the book. They are just Mexicans. Who said that? What's that about? Yeah, that was the, the entire attitude of the Obama administration. They actually kept track of the crime scenes where the guns were were seized, and they knew and they kept track of how many people were being killed. At some point, people in ATF and in DOJ at lower levels, they became very concerned about the guns going to the Sinaloa cartel. They expressed their concerns and their superiors, uh, their response really was, and actually had been said, well, so far, you know, there's a lot of people being killed and we're concerned about that, but they're just Mexicans. <laughs> but that all changed. Then yeah. in December of 2010, it changed when a U.S. border agent mm -hmm. was ambushed and killed with guns from Fast and Furious yep. um, in Arizona. That's and when it all kind of blew up, huh? And that's when it blew up. Yep. And that's when the ATF agents became whistleblowers. They went to Congress uh, and Congress started an investigation in January of 2011, hmm. uh, which really exposed everything to the light of day. So uh, that brings up... Uh, Attorney General Eric Holder, who became the first sitting member of the cabinet of the United States to be held in contempt of Congress, June 28, 2012. So how are we going to, how are we going to convict him? So. Or, yeah, go all the way to the top, both, right? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. He was, he was held in both civil 
and criminal contempt. Mm -hmm. The Department of Justice Inspector General did an investigation mm -hmm. and, and exposed a lot of these facts, which had already been exposed in extensive investigations by Congress. The uh, Senate Judiciary and the House Oversight Committee's investigations, where Andre, by the way, I represented him in his testimony before both of them, and in his testimony before the Department of Justice Inspector General. The problem is that the Department of Justice Inspector General, who is um, the same Inspector General who is doing the investigation of the Russian hoax investigation hmm. involving the Trump administration, and everybody's waiting for his report. Well, he came out with a report on Fast and Furious where he, he, he talked about all the facts and the murders and all those things. But he doesn't have jurisdiction to prosecute, and Congress didn't doesn't have jurisdiction to prosecute. So all of the data went to Eric Holder, who himself was personally involved, and all his top assistants and deputies were involved in the operation. So it went to him to make the decision to whether they would bring criminal charges or not. And of course he brought criminal charges against nobody. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. When you are the cops, where is people going to go? Now Congress went, had gone to o President Obama and asked for him to appoint a special prosecutor, but he refused. <laughs> yeah, yep. That reminds me of other people in super high places. You can't get them for anything. So after a couple of years, they get them for corruption. But they can only get them for corruption if they lose their back. You know, if, if they really mess up and their buddies don't cover their back. So, yeah. Um, okay, but you're the lawyer. Uh, I don't see any way around it. Uh, there's, I have a story, you know, I've been living in Germany for 20 years. And when George Bush was president, uh, George Bush Jr., uh, a bunch of Germans, they, they, they started a court case against George Bush for crimes against humanity, war crimes and all this stuff, you know. And uh, they, they got their day in court in Berlin and nothing ever happened, you know, but they got to pat themselves on the back and... Um, but nothing ever happened because the president seems to be untouchable. And that looks like this situation here uh, with uh, the Obama administration. Or, or what's different? Is there, there a difference this time? I, unfortunately, I don't think there is going to be a difference. A uh, part of the reason is because uh, the, the, the force of events has just rolled on. And we're now into this Russian hoax and the deep state yeah. that Obama left behind and all the <laughs> misconduct by them. Uh, and so I think that Fast and Furious and the, what Obama and Eric Holder did, uh, unfortunately, very well may be just left in the trail of history. And that's one of the other reasons that I wrote this book, because yeah. I don't think it should be lost. I yeah. think that 
uh, w once the deep state is fully exposed, a lot of the people that are in subject of the deep state investigation that's going on now, people like Strzok and Bruce Orr and Brennan, they all were involved in Fast and Furious also. Jesus, you know, there's, it's um, a lot of things, a lot of words come to mind, the powers that be, the deep state, the swamp, whatever. It's always uh, the lawmakers, yeah? What do you do when, when you're a lawmaker? You can just write the law over and they can't get you, you or you can't get them, can you? I'm hoping that you can, and I'm still holding out hope that uh, the Trump administration and the Congress can at some point actually bring accountability to the conduct of senior people from the FBI, mm -hmm. um, from other law enforcement agencies, from the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. There has to be accountability, yeah. and I'm hopeful that it's going to happen because if it doesn't, a lot of Americans are never going to regain trust in those institutions, which historically have had great reputations. Yeah. The FBI and ATF, uh, those, those are institutions that we rely on and have always relied on, and yeah. if Americans don't trust it, then we have a lot of serious problems. Yeah. I, uh, I can't get over this one quote in your book. It says, then the DOJ then waited for the murders to take place. It's like it was, it was just planned, you know? It, it definitely was planned and discussed. Mm -hmm. yeah. and never disclosed to Mexico. Mm-hmm. But it's part of what I call the, the mindset of the Obama administration, mm -hmm. which threatens the breakdown of American democracy. Yeah. And the part of that mindset is the ends justify the means. Yeah. So in their mind, having gun control mm -hmm. in yep. the United States was an end, mm -hmm. and that it, it, it was justified to have all of the Mexicans be killed mm -hmm. and even Americans be killed to get that end result. Okay. Uh, and that's just, that's, it's mind blowing, really. Yeah, you said it. You said it. Um, it brings to light uh, the, the, what do you call it? The archetypal example, was it Lenin or Stalin that said, in order to make an omelet, you have to break some eggs, you know? And uh, yeah, okay, 60 million people killed by, the, by communism. That's, you know, that sounds like uh, their mindset, basically. The ends justify the means. And, uh, and in, fact, in fact, when the, the, first, the main whistleblower, his name was uh, John Dotson, mm -hmm. uh, when he went to his, before he went to Congress as a whistleblower, he went to the top supervisors in ATF. Mm -hmm. to complain about this operation. And that's the exact thing mm -hmm. that his supervisor said, that if you're going to make an omelet, you have to break some eggs. What a communist bastard, huh? 
social engineering yep. at its best. Boy, I might have to edit that out, but sorry, man. That's, <laughs> that's the problem with the country. Those kind of people in high places. The ends justify the means. That's what Lenin said. Jesus Christ. And, and I think that's what we're seeing happen in America today. Yeah. That, yeah. that the De Democratic Congress, mm -hmm. to them, not passing any legislation, mm -hmm. allowing immigrants to live in deplorable conditions yeah. is okay if the end is that yeah. Trump doesn't get reelected. If it just exactly it supports their narrative, their platform. But okay, I don't want to go down that road. I'm I'm probably the most anti-communist person you'll n ever meet. But um, and I don't want this to turn into a bash fest. But uh, let's get back to your book. Um, sure. <laughs> because I I I will just talk your ear off about that once we get into politics. And uh, but this is about you, my friend. Chapter five. Tell me about. I'm sorry, gentlemen. You are just not credible. If that's an important chapter, I was hired um, by Andre mm -hmm. uh, three months after Agent Terry was killed. So he was killed in December. I was hired in March. Mm -hmm. He, Andre had been represented by an attorney in Phoenix, Arizona, whose brother was actually uh, a lawyer in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Phoenix. They tried to get Andre to be quiet, mm -hmm. to go along with their plan. As they said, everybody's going to row the boat together. Andre didn't want to do that. So he contacted me in Texas and hired me because he didn't trust any of the lawyers in Arizona. So the very first thing I did was I said, okay, Andre, uh, this fast and furious thing sounds kind of, out there but you know there's some I understand what you're saying and I believe you so I'm going to schedule a meeting so I scheduled a, a meeting with D, the D, top DOJ and ATF people in Phoenix mm -hmm. uh, this was just I scheduled it for four days after I'd been hired yep I went there before I went there the main whistleblower called me and gave me documents and told me what he was doing with Congress and had been doing with Congress uh, I was provided a lot of documents that Congress had already. Mm -hmm. So I went into the meeting knowing several things for sure. I knew that the weapons recovered at the Brian Terry crime scene were traced to my client, Andre's store in Fast and Furious. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the guns had been allowed to go to Mexico because uh, I had crime scene traces from Mexico of guns, a lot of guns from Fast and Furious, and I had documents where DOJ and ATF had been even talking to the White House about the number of people being killed by these guns in Mexico. So I had all of this information uh, with their, in their internal documents mm -hmm. sitting before me. So when I went in to the meeting, um, I said, First of all, I'm concerned about my client's safety because his name had been put out in the media by the D Department of Justice as part of their whole plan of gun control. You know, this 
mm-hmm. gun dealer on the border selling all these guns to the cartel type of thing. Yeah, they want, he was so, part of the omelet. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. They were going to take him down. So I said, so I said to them, I said, um, you know, I'm very concerned about the fact that guns were seized at the, at the Brian Terry crime scene, that hundreds, if not thousands of guns had been allowed to go to the cartels. Uh, and they said, none of that is true. Hmm. My client, after a month of dealing with them, when they first hired him, he expressed his concerns and they told him none of the guns were, they were going to Mexico. They're all being seized and stopped, mm-hmm. intercepted. So I said, well, you told Andre they were being intercepted. And they said, yeah, and that's right. And it's still right today. Not a single gun ever went to Mexico. Hmm. There, none of the guns at the Brian Terry uh, murder scene had anything to do with Andre, his store. Or they were not sold from his store. Um, during Fast and Furious, and as soon as they said that, all that, then I just said, gentlemen, I'm sorry, you're just not credible. <laughs> I packed up my stuff, and Andre and I left. Cool. Yeah. The next thing we did was we called Congress and said, Congress, we want to cooperate with you. Let us know when you want to talk to us. <laughs> Interesting. How do you call Congress, by the way? Um, we, I knew, well, we, you, you can get through to them, mm-hmm. um, because we knew, I knew the staffers, who the staffers were that were okay. work, working with for Grassley, Senator Grassley and Re, or Representative Isa. I knew their names and so I was able to call them directly. And I coordinated through them, through their main staff lawyers. I'd like to call Congress too, but it probably wouldn't be productive. Probably get me in jail, probably. <laughs> but anyway, so so how many, um, I mean, there's so much illegal stuff going on. How many laws did they break? And why, I mean, still, I, I mean, uh, what was illegal and why, and why can't we get them on it, you know? Yes, there were many, many laws broken. Uh, you can start with, at the base of it, that it's actually Ill- it was illegal for them to transport or allow to be, uh, weapons to be transported across the border into another country. There's law, there, there are felony laws against that, Yeah, number one. But more importantly, during the investigation, the number of people in the Obama administration that just lied under oath, hmm. including Eric Holder, who lied repeatedly to Congress, hmm. uh, that's obstruction of justice. Yep. Uh, that's uh, perjury. We can look around at all the people that have recently been prosecuted for far less than they did in terms of lying, but nothing ever yep. happened to any of them. That's even sure. though even the Department of Justice IG said they lied, everybody said they lied. Yeah. But again, there was no accountability. And so no, those, those are very like false statements, perjury, obstruction of justice. Those are easy to prove and could have easily been proved and prosecuted. Yeah. So all those were broken. 
Um, so to me, there were countless numbers, a number of federal statutes that were violated that were felony criminal statutes. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of our famous female politician who uh, had over 30,000 emails on private servers, which is a felony and no conviction because she's so high up. She's a lawmaker, you know. And that's uh, appalling. <laughs> I've done yeah. many, many internal investigations. I've represented many Fortune 500 companies, the audit committees of the board of directors in internal investigations. Uh, and I can tell you st many stories, which I won't uh, bore you with, <laughs> where where if, if, if someone not even destroyed, but if they even altered the wording of a document under subpoena, mm -hmm. that person was threatened with felony prosecution for obstruction of justice. Yeah. Yeah. Destruction of evidence. I mean, there's so many things there in that case. Wow. It, uh, well, I've been reading your book. Which is, a, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, which, by the way, uh, the, the FBI said that there, she did not have intent. Well, the problem with that is <laughs> it's, those are not intent crimes. Yeah. 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 But it, it just reminds me of your last chapter you know, hope for justice fades, but prayers continue. I don't want to do any, um, what do you call it? You don't have to tell us all about your book. I, I've been reading it. It's a fascinating, awesome read. But um, yeah, it's all kind of hopeless, huh? Yeah, the prayers continue because every week, Andre still gets crime scene traces for wow. guns that were sold back in 2010 under Fast and Furious. Even when today. El Chapo, when El Chapo was captured mm -hmm. in January of 2016, mm -hmm. the pistol he had on his side was a gun sold during Fast and Furious. In the room next to him, there was a 50 caliber that was sold during Fast and Furious. So people are still being killed with these weapons, and that's a very, yeah. very difficult burden for my client, Andre, because every day when he wakes up, if he yeah. gets in the mail a crime scene trace, he knows it's a gun that he was told to sell during <laughs> Fast and Furious. So 2009 and Obama's legacy is still affecting us, 2019. That's correct. Wow, wow. That just shows you the power or the negative energy of, of this mindset that they have, uh, that I want to attribute to communism, but um, okay. Anyway, <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, it's the omelet. Lenin said it, you know, the ends justify the means. You want to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. So, hey, buddy, guess what? You're an egg today, you know? And Andre's getting that, every day. They wanted to make him an egg. But, wow, that's pretty heavy stuff. And that it's connected to ISIS attacks in Paris. It's just really bad, really bad. It makes you lose faith in the Washington, D.C., you know? That's true. There was actually even an attempted ISIS attack here in Texas, in Garland, Texas. If you remember, 
there was an attempted ISIS attack on the um, a group of cartoonists that had a convention. <laughs> they were being attacked because they were drawing pictures yeah. of Muhammad. Don't get me on that. Don't uh, because because I remember the internet meme where it said, uh, "What was it? There was an attack in California, or it doesn't matter. There was an attack in in all of these states in twenty dead. You know, and there's an attack in Texas." Two terrorists dead. Yes. You remember that meme? And those, yeah, and those guns, those guns, by the way, were also from Fast and Furious. Yep. That was, um, and this kind of stuff, of course, is not reported in the media. No, not yeah. at all. Yeah. I remember that very well. And um, boy, I was just so proud of Texas. I was, I'm going to move there someday, man, you know, uh, because it, you know, the thing is, it, it wasn't just an internet meme. It was the truth. Everywhere else, there's a terrorist attack, dead innocent people in Texas, two dead terrorists. What's the difference? What, what are they doing different? You know? Well, the, the attack in Texas uh, has not gotten publicity. Congress uh, tried to get information from the Obama administration on that. But what has been proven be through uh, documents that um, that uh, Judicial Watch got through the Freedom of Information Act, there was an FBI agent that was embedded with those terror that terrorist cell that tried to do that that attack. Wow. He actually, they tried to recruit him to actually participate in it. He didn't, but he followed them in his car to the site of the attack. He oh. watched them get out with armor on and their weapons, assault weapons. He then turned around and tried to drive away. He never reported it to the police. Hmm. Fortunately, in Garland, Texas, there was an off-duty policeman who saw it, who was off-duty, and he's the one that killed the two terrorists. They then set up a roadblock, and they stopped the FBI agent, and that's how they found out there was an FBI agent involved wow. and that he was trying to get away from the scene, and he had not reported a single thing. So is he in jail? No. <laughs> and I thought it was the security guards at the building uh, that actually got the terrorists. You're saying it was an off duty. Yeah. It was a, a security guard initially engaged, and on one, and I think he was injured. There was a mm. security guard injured, but a, an off duty policeman is the one who actually killed them. Wow. And why? God, and you know, why isn't the FBI guy behind bars? That's a very good question. I think that's something that we you'd want to ask uh, um, Mueller or, or Comey. Or it's Eric Holder, you know? <laughs> or Eric Holder, yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay, well, I don't, I don't want to end on a downer. Let's end on an upper. Your book is okay. really absolutely fascinating. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I've been reading it. Um, uh, I haven't been able to finish it in this time, but no spoilers, no spoilers. So what's uh, next on the horizon for you? Well, uh, my publisher, Paul Brody, who I know you know, yep. uh, he has asked me to consider writing a couple of books. The, the next one, which I'm 
have kind of started work on already uh, is not as dramatic or as uh, a politically sensitive, but it's uh, he wants me to write a book about Aruba. Okay, I forgot what was that. Uh, Aruba, the the Dutch island. Dutch oh, a travel book. Yes. Oh, well, oh, totally. yes and no. Yeah, it's about Aruba, but I know a lot about Aruba because I, in fact, I'm going there in ten or seven days for a month. I go three times a year. Mm -hmm. I generally spend 11 to 12 weeks there, and I've been doing that since mm -hmm. uh, 1999. Mm -hmm. So I know a lot, a lot about the island itself and the history of the island. Ah. Uh, and it has a fascinating, fascinating history. Uh, there's a lot of interesting uh, subplots to Aruba. It's a it's a great tourist place. I love it. It's my favorite place to go yeah. anywhere in the world. But it it started uh, by a family that was associated with the Sicilian mafia. Mm -hmm. The entire tourism was built up because they made it a free port. The Kennedy administration tried to. Uh, get Aruba not to have a free port because that allowed the drugs to, from Venezuela and Colombia to throw, flow through it. And, huh. uh, uh, and, and so that family actually built the first casino, the first hotel, they owned the bank, uh, and they are, wow. they, that's the family using uh, drug money and mafia connections to make Aruba into a tourist site. Wow. So that sounds like that, that yeah. people don't know. That sounds like a book for you. And Paul is a, a, an expert at travel books. So, and you're an expert at the, yeah, that stuff. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that book. It sounds like it'd be a good marriage of both yeah. a travel book and a political book. Maybe you could be kind of like the next Tom Clancy Something like uh, the yeah the or or no who was the guy Grisham the guy the lawyer he's an ex lawyer also, and yes, uh, although you're not an ex lawyer you're a current lawyer right? <laughs> That's true. I'm still practicing. Awesome and super lawyer from Texas. What is a super lawyer? It's just a it's a designation mm -hmm. that uh, this magazine puts out, uh, and it's based on feedback from contemporaries in the legal profession who nominate you uh, and who, uh, who who then give feedback saying that you're one of the prominent people in a particular area of, of expertise. Uh, mine is mainly white collar criminal defense, antitrust, corporate governance. I uh, think I'm going to name this podcast Larry the Overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of okay, how about a, a couple of grab bag questions? Just some quick off-the-cuff questions. Um, who is your favorite author? Um, growing up, my favorite author was uh, Herman Woot. Mm -hmm. But I then um, have mainly done nonfiction reading. So there's a variety of nonfiction authors that uh, I read uh, on a variety of topics. 
But one of my favorites is William Manchester, who wrote American Caesar, which was a biography of Douglas MacArthur. Oh, okay. Cool. American Caesar. Interesting. And more, and more recently, I've read some of Brian uh, Kilmeade's books. Mm-hmm. Is that your favorite book, uh, too? Do you have a favorite uh, book? I do have a favorite one of Brian, with Brian Kilmeade. I think it's a fascinating book, and I think all of his books are great. But he wrote a book about Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. and the Tripoli Pirates. Oh, okay. Which is fascinating insight into Thomas Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson was a pacifist, uh, but he actually was the one who promoted and ended up winning the first war the United States ever waged uh, outside of our own country. Ah. He, he waged the war against the Tripoli Pirates, which were was really run by four countries. Wow. Um, and they were seizing American ships, mm-hmm. holding the past the the crew uh, hostage and demanding big ransoms from the United States. Hmm. They have been doing that to Britain. They have been doing that to Britain and France. Uh, And so we were protected by Britain until we got our independence. And then the pirates were free to seize American ships and American crews. And they demanded ransoms that were so high, uh, the young United States couldn't possibly pay them. So Thomas Jefferson actually created what is now the United States Marines, uh, built a a fleet of ships, which is now the United States Navy, uh, and waged war, and he actually won the war and kept our ships safe. He's my favorite founding father, Thomas Jefferson, pacifist and (laughs) awesome, made the Navy, the United States Marines. If I remember correctly, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and he is also the one who founded West Point in 1802. There you go. Full circle. Awesome. If I remember correctly, the Tripoli thing was also one of the, th- one of the events, correct me if I'm wrong, it's one of the events that uh, kind of made the founding fathers against foreign wars and meddling in foreign wars. That's true. It is very controversial. Um, John Adams was against it, mm-hmm. uh, and Thomas Jefferson was really the one who who, who pushed it. Mm-hmm. But it was very controversial, and you're right mm-hmm. that uh, that it was a long time after that before we got involved in a foreign war again. Wow. Well, okay, but back to your book. Back to your book. This awesome book, Betrayal. Obama's corrupt legacy of lies, deceit, guns, and murder, serious murder, is on sale right now? It is. It's available on Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. In fact, if, uh, if uh, your listeners go to uh, the Amazon.com website, mm-hmm. and they under the search logo at the top, if they just put in betrayal and Obama, those two words, mm-hmm then my book will be the first thing that pops up and it's available on Kindle, paperback, and hard copy. 
Awesome. That's an awesome keyword. Betrayal Obama. <laughs> yeah. And um, where else can we reach you or where do you want people to reach you? Uh, we have a, a, a website. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, our law firm has a website and we post a lot of the things about the book as well as other white collar things. The, the name of the, the law firm is Gatos, G-A-Y-D-O-S. Duffer, D-U-F-F-E-R, and if you just put Google Data Stuffer, it'll bring up our website. Uh, mm-hmm. Readers can then read about my background in more detail, other books that and articles I've written, and also uh, listen to podcasts that we post on there. Thanks so much, Larry. It's been real. You, you've this is one of the few podcasts, the only podcast that I've cussed so much and been so emotional. And uh, so uh, thank you so much for your time. And I really look forward to seeing your next book and uh, all the best. I appreciate you having me and I enjoyed our discussion very much, Eric. Thank you very much. Okay, my friends, if you like that podcast, then remember to go to zbooks.co and go get all the materials to start your authoring career. We have a seven-day challenge every week, so there's no excuse to not finish your book. And remember, please go to iTunes and upload this podcast and Google Play. Okay, I look forward to seeing you at the top.